objects to observe in the May 2023 night sky on episode 324 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for anybody else who enjoys going out under the stars. Try a little bit of an experiment here today, Shane. I think we're just talking about it off the cuff and maybe do a bit of a video and put that up to YouTube just to see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. I'm um, just sharing uh, the show notes, I guess. And this is typically what we would like. The show notes is what people are probably used to seeing posted to the website, actualastronomy.com. Uh, but now you can watch us go through it in real time, I guess. Just, just to see, we'll just mm -hmm, see how mm -hmm. that goes. So let's see, did you get any observing in this week? We had a few nights of rain, but I think we had a few clear nights in there. Just curious if you were able to see anything. Uh, just, uh, just naked eye that night of the big Aurora on, uh, let me pull out my calendar here. That was uh, a week ago. So I guess that would be April 23rd. Uh, there was a very bright Aurora. I think the KP index hit like 8.3, which is, I believe a G3 uh, or is it G4? I can't remember a uh, geomagnetic storm. Essentially what that means is, uh, when the Aurora is that strong, uh, like even some of the Southern U S states, I think we're able to see it, uh, if it was clear that night and, um, uh, you know, at least within my social media feeds for our kind of region here, man, there is a lot of great photographs that people were able to capture, um, you know, lots of color. Um, and even in my backyard in, in the city, I was able to see the Aurora and it extended well into the Southern sky. Like it was in, it was almost an all sky Aurora. Yeah, it was pretty spectacular there. I'll just scroll. I took some photos of it. And uh, I suppose that's one thing that I'm if I'm taking photos and making lots of notes, then I'm like, maybe we should use these. <laughs> so this one here, this is from uh, just a yard here in the city. And you can see I'm right by a whole row of streetlights. And you can still see huge Aurora. And this is looking towards the south, southwest. And you can see the aurora is covering essentially the entire south southwestern sky. Yeah, yeah, it uh, it was very extensive. Uh, I was looking at it around nine thirty, and it flared up, and then it sort of settled down, and then I think it flared up, and and uh, that's the thing with auroras—you just really never know what you're going to get. And uh, anyway, it was a spectacular night for it. So we hopped in the car and and drove out of town about ten minutes here looked at the Aurora for a short while, got back in the car to warm up. We were going to leave. And then everything just almost like the moon suddenly came up. Everything was that bright. The Aurora was just so spectacular. We get out of the car and then I saw this just to my laughter towards the West. And you can see coming down from overhead into the South Southwest was this huge curtain and it sort of wrapped around and eventually enveloped the moon and Venus. And I've never seen the Aurora like that. It was absolutely as bright as you could ever imagine it being like at the North pole or something like that. And then it was in the South and into overhead. It wasn't in the North at all. It was very strange in that respect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that part of it is very weird to me that, you know, with your photo capture there, you know, it shows it in the South and uh, very strange, very yeah. strange. Coming in from the South. That's coming in from the south, from overhead, sort of sweeping down to the south and then moving back up. So I imagine it was visible pretty far south. And the way this was moving, 
all of this color here was visible to the unaided eye. You just uh, saw it as a, like paler versions of this. We could see the greens pretty easily, but you can even see the purples, especially when you held up the phone to take a photo. And then you were looking at it as the image sort of appeared. It takes like a few seconds to take the photograph. You could see that color as you saw the photo take shape and the and the color in the photo. Then when you were looking, you're like, okay, yeah, that is the purple. Like it was just like confirming what you were seeing. It was really neat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those opportunities for bright Aurora don't happen all of the time. Um, so it was pretty neat to be able to, to uh, see a little bit of it, at least from the city. And, um, you know, a lot of people at work were sharing photos too. I, I just love events like that because it really captures the attention of folks. This one here is neat. I like that we, you know, we're on the sort of the pole line. You can see this is the constellation Virgo. And to see the Aurora in front, usually you're used to seeing if you ever had Aurora like this, and I've never seen Aurora like this anyway, it, it usually is in front of something like Ursa Major, the Big Dipper or Cassiopeia or something like that. But this is Virgo and this is like into Corvus and Hydra and that sort of uh, region of the sky. You can see this is getting very low down on the Southern horizon. Uh, very, very interesting that it did that. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. Did you get any other, I guess that was just the one night you were able to get out. Yeah. Yeah. That was about it. Uh, I contemplated going out last night, but it was a little too windy in my backyard and it's weird. My backyard, depending how the wind blows, it, it turns into a wind tunnel there. So you can be standing in the driveway and it's barely a breath of wind and in the backyard, it's like 25 kilometers an hour. It's strange. So, so I did not observe last night, but I know you got out one other night. So testing a new eyepiece. Yeah. The night before last, Mike and I went out and, uh, took a I took a whole pile of photos. This is the only one where you can sort of barely see. This is this is Mike with his 78 millimeter Takahashi. And then uh, this is at the same distance. So this is a 10 inch Takahashi. No, I'm just kidding. Um, just sort of looks a bit much larger in the photo there. Yeah, you're, you're 100 millimeter. <laughs> yeah, just the 100 millimeter there. And we were testing it. You can see how big the eyepiece is on the end of the telescope. It's about yeah. as big around as the telescope. Yeah. And for those listening that uh, may not watch uh, the video, this is an enormous eyepiece, like ridiculously enormous. <laughs> it's insane. So this is the 17 millimeter Explorer Scientific 92 degree. And I made a bit of an unboxing video. I started thinking we get this stuff in, maybe we'll try to do some unboxing videos. I don't know. I was just playing around. So just like in the in the true style of when we were starting the podcast, we would just sort of record stuff and put it out. And I was just like, oh, I'll just record it as I'm working through anything and maybe we'll we'll fire it out. So I think it went up on the YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah, it did. Cool. And this eyepiece is fantastic. So we just we just put it in sort of for first light. It is a big eyepiece. There's a lot of things with this eyepiece which surprised me. I heard it was pretty big and heavy. It's 2.75 pounds. It's 2.89. 2.89. Is that On what it Explore is? Scientific site. Yeah. Like basically 2.9. Then I round it up, call it three. <laughs> yeah. So basically it's, it's a three pound eyepiece, but the one thing people haven't mentioned in the online reviews that, that I've read anyway, is that it's very well balanced. The weight is, is more towards like the bottom third. 
Okay. And so it, in a way, it doesn't quite feel that heavy. It definitely is a heavier eyepiece. And I wondered about the design. I thought, oh, it looks like really big and clunky. And even in this photo, like you can see, it is a large eyepiece, but I had no trouble getting it. Even in my small little camera carrying eyepiece case, I had no trouble just sort of inserting it in vertically. And it didn't like make that eyepiece case feel sort of uh, oddly heavy. I just made sure I put it in the center of the eyepiece case. And that was totally fine. But the views through a chain are unlike anything I've ever seen before through an eyepiece. Hmm. Yeah, I'm curious to look through it. Um, I've looked through the ethos in the past, the 100 degree fields. And, you know, I mentioned it before on the podcast that I, I didn't love it because I felt like I had to move my eyeball around too much to take in the whole field. Um, but the eye relief isn't quite as nice on the ethos. Um, and, uh, you know, this one being just a little smaller at 92 degrees and maybe it's the sweet spot for me. Um, so anyway, yeah, I would love to look through it at some time. It presents the image in a truly unique way, although it is similar to one other eyepiece. The main benefit of this eyepiece is that I believe it's, it's essentially designed for those of us who wear glasses to be able to get about as wide a field of view as you can see with glasses on. I think yeah. that's, the, that's the purpose. Yeah. Interesting. Um, just back to the weight last comment that I'll have about it is like, I didn't realize how big this thing was. And I, you know, I always assumed that the 31 Nagler was kind of the, the biggest boat anchor of them all. Um, cause a lot of people and myself included complain about balance issues when, when using the 31 Nagler, yeah. uh, but it comes in at like 2.2 pounds. So, you know, anybody that is, uh, contemplating this one should consider the weight. Uh, this certainly would not be a good eyepiece in a small telescope. I, I just think you'd have a lot of balance issues. I think so. Although it's, there was this eyepiece blew away all my preconceptions of what this eyepiece would be like. And it's really hard to describe how this eyepiece works. When you read reviews, the most common complaint about this eyepiece is that they didn't make more and in different focal ratios or different uh, focal lengths, I guess. Yeah. like There's the 17 and the 12, I think. There's only the 17 and the 12. Many people commented they wish they would do a larger one. I, I don't because I couldn't imagine what that would be like. I wish they would make something like a six or something to that effect, I think would be spectacular. But the surprise with this eyepiece was for me anyway, I thought for sure I'm going to use my low power finder. I balanced my telescope for my 32 Masayama, which is only like a 16 ounce or 17 ounce eyepiece. This eyepiece, I think, is 44 ounces. So it's a it's a huge difference. But even with a balance there, when I just locked down the control for the Azimuth, I, I had no trouble with the eyepiece in this telescope and it tracked fine. It sort of threw the telescope tracking off a little bit, but we had it on M13 and it stayed in the field of view for 20 minutes. And then I just sort of had to uh, adjust it. So I was surprised. I didn't even bother adjusting the telescope to balance for it. Mm, right on. So that kind of surprised me. I think, like I said, most of the weight is low down. And I think that's why the other thing with this eyepiece that surprised me is how it presents the field of view. So I've tried observing with other larger field of view eyepieces. And like you, I they don't do much for me because I, I need the eye relief. But what somehow what they've done with this eyepiece is they've made it almost feels more like a binocular field that you're looking at. It 
makes things appear larger. It's almost like the magnification seems more. So when Mike and I were looking, we estimated the power that this eyepiece was given. And it was confusing because we figured it was probably about like 60 magnification, but in my scope, it was closer to 40 magnification. And you know how with binoculars, how they things appear larger, just like it just appears to have not quite more magnification, but like the scale is larger. You know how binoculars do that? And if you close an eye, it kind of goes away and you open the eye and comes back. Mm -hmm. This eyepiece does that. Weird. It It's really strange. The other thing that was very strange about this eyepiece is I've probably observed more with Mike than anybody else in my entire life. And the one thing Mike and I know all too well is that our eyes focus at completely different points. They couldn't be more different. So whenever we go to one another's telescopes, it's always a game of adjusting the focus because it's just it's it's usually off by a significant amount. And with this eyepiece, Mike walked over and he said, "It's in focus. I can I don't have to adjust the focus of this eyepiece." And we're like, "What?" So then we went over and took it and put it in his scope. And again, we didn't have to adjust the focus of the eyepiece. And it did the same thing. We're presented like this seemingly larger image scale, even, even apart from how it presents like a pretty wide field of view. Anyway, it was just larger. It was very, very different sort of eyepiece to look through. It was almost hard to go back to looking through any other eyepiece. It was so different, but you know, what it reminds me of the only other eyepiece I've ever looked at that kind of did that was the Edmund scientific 28 millimeter RKE. I'm not sure if you ever looked through that eyepiece or not. Yeah, I have one. Yeah, it's kind of a neat, uh, people describe it as a floating in space effect because the edge of the eyepiece casing is almost invisible. The The glass is basically the width of the eyepiece and uh, it's a very different experience with the RKE uh, 28 millimeter. That, it, that eyepiece from Explore Scientific reminds me of that eyepiece and hmm. it's a very similar experience. Cool. Well, I'm but looking forward to looking through it one night. Yeah. We saw this though. I'm going to zoom in on this. We saw this arc. I know you said it looked like a contrail, but it was more green to the eye. I think it's because it's close to the moon here. You couldn't see the green of it, but it was one of these Steve type of Aurora arcs. And it started over in the West, right over Venus. And I thought at first it was a contrail that Venus was lighting up because it was evenly illuminated and it, and it was right. Venus was right in the bottom of it. And I said to Mike, I said, look at that. I said, Venus is lighting up like a contrail or something. And Mike said, I don't think that's a contrail. I think that's one of these Steve things. And I said, no, no, we'll wait. And if, when it drifts off Venus, maybe it will become less illuminated or the moon will start brightening it up. And then it moved off and then it got very green once it was out from behind Venus. And then it did drift towards the moon. And you can see in this shot that the dimmest part of this feature is actually beside the moon. And that's because the moon was washing it out. If it was a contrail, it would be brightest closest to the moon. And then it would be less bright as it went along. And when it passed in front of the moon, it was kind of, uh, it just kind of made it all sort of murky around that area. And, but it didn't light up like you would have expected. It was, it was a very strange thing to see. So I took a, a pile of photos. I wish I'd take them more when it was further up. And then soon as it passed, we had all this cloud move in. So we kind of lost it at that point, but it was visible in the sky probably for about 30 minutes or so. Hmm, interesting. Really neat. 
So any other observations to share before we? No, sir. Dive in. So May 5th, we're going to have a full moon and there's a penumbral lunar eclipse, but these penumbral lunar eclipses, they're not very exciting. eh? No, uh, they're pretty easy to miss. In fact, uh, if you didn't know it was happening, uh, you probably would never really catch it. Even if you were looking up, <laughs> do you ever try to look at one? I don't think I have. I don't recall anyway. You won't, you won't. I didn't recall. And I did. I tried to go out and look at one of these once with a bunch of people. And I'm, I'm not even sure if I can say that I saw it, or maybe it was like some thin cloud passed over the moon or something that that's almost the effect. It's maybe it dimmed it down a little bit, but I would say like maybe five or 10%. It's, it's basically something that is visible only, I think, through uh, an astrophotographer's lens. I've seen some beautiful astrophotography of penumbral lunar eclipses, but this isn't one of those lunar eclipses where it goes deep red or anything of that sort. Yeah. Yeah. The, like a proper lunar eclipse is far more engaging and, uh, and interesting to look at. Yeah. Cause this is just when it goes through the penumbra, which is the outer shadow of the earth being projected into space. And what we want is an umbra lunar eclipse when the moon goes through the, the inner portion of earth's shadow. And that's when we get the beautiful dark red and crimson tones that, uh, that we all know and love for lunar eclipses. May 12th, we have the last quarter moon. And then on the 13th in the morning sky, and I put my note up here for about 5.50 odd AM for us, Shane, anyway, Saturn is going to be three degrees-ish above the moon. I think my inner circle here is just over three degrees. My outer circle here is 10 degrees. And so for us and for those further west than us, or maybe in Japan, you're going to get a nice view of Saturn and the moon very close together in the morning sky. That could be a nice image, I suppose, if somebody was trying to take a photograph over some uh, landscape, like buildings or hillsides or something like that. It should look nice. Yeah, yeah. It would be a somewhat challenging photograph to uh, get both exposed properly, but that's the beauty of post-processing with photography. You can do some fun things like that. I know nothing about this. <laughs> Yeah, I know enough to say what I just said, but I couldn't tell you how to do it. <laughs> May 17th, Jupiter and the moon, they're going to be very close in the sky, in the morning sky. And there's even going to be an occultation of Jupiter by the moon. We get it here. It will be above the horizon. But for us, I believe it's about an hour and a half after moonrise, Jupiter rise, sunrise, so it's going to be in a very bright sky. And then you can see here in my image, Mercury is right here. So the sun is only just over here. I think it's going to be pretty close. I think you'd want to be pretty careful of making this observation. I'd, I'd want to have a house or some other building of significance between me and the sun and to figure out where Jupiter and the moon might be uh, prior to that event. Because Jupiter doesn't move appreciably. If you were getting up early in the morning for the few nights before should be able to figure out where Jupiter is going to be and where the sun is rising and get a building between you and, and the sun in order to, uh, to see Jupiter and the moon kind of creeping around the edge of that building together, and then maybe be able to make an observation of the occultation uh, later on in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that looks what five degrees or so above horizon. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's about five degrees above the horizon at 440. And I think the occultation occurs a couple hours after this, like an hour and a half after sunrise. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. 
those further west can see it. I think if you're in like right on the west coast of North America or maybe in Hawaii or somewhere like that, I think you stand a pretty good chance. I think parts of Alaska perhaps, but yeah, probably around the the west coast is probably going to be your best chance for seeing the occultation event. Again, like you said, pretty close to the horizon, but uh, the occultation is simply when the moon passes in front of a planet, in this case, it's Jupiter. We had an occultation of Mars back in December on the night of the Mars opposition. I think it was Mars, March, December 9th, I think is when we had that um, Mars occultation by the moon. But this one here is much more difficult to see because it's going to be close to the horizon. That always makes for a pretty challenging event, no matter how you cut it. And this one's a daytime event for us. So I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. So there's going to be some double shadow transits on Jupiter, but I think this is too low. When Jupiter is this low, Shane, I don't know that anybody would stand a decent chance of seeing double shadow transits until uh, Jupiter is, is at least in a somewhat dark sky. Well, and better seeing, you know, this, uh, like observing a, a shadow transit, um, you do need decent seeing to see the little black dot you know, of the shadow on Jupiter. And I think at, you know, five to 10 degrees here above horizon, um, it's just going to be too dirty, uh, too dirty of air to look through. Yeah. I think maybe once we get into like the latter half of June or something, I think maybe shadow transits would, would be visible once Jupiter is, you know, another 10 or 15 degrees higher up maybe, but I think really waiting for, Jupiter to be in a in a darker sky and and higher up in in the midsummer is probably a a better bet than trying to hunt down those double shadow transits while it's right on the horizon. I, I don't know. I think that would be pretty tough because even when Jupiter is nice and high, it can be easy enough to miss a shadow transit anyway. I I couldn't imagine trying to see one when it's this low down. Yeah, agreed. May nineteenth, that's the new moon, and on the evenings of May nineteenth and twentieth, there's the grasslands. National Park Beyond the Big Dipper Star Party. Yeah, I'm off that entire week. Let me just take a look here. Yeah, I'm off uh, on vacation from the 22nd until the 26th. So I have a pretty large window and I will be picking the best weather dates to to go down there and do some observing. Nice. Very cool. May 22nd and May 23rd evening sky we have venus paired with the moon so venus is going to be nice and high all month in fact and most people have been able to pick it out just on their own i know when we had uh, berta on the show here just in the episode we only just recorded we chatted about people walking up and saying hey what's that bright star and it's not a bright star it's one of our closest neighbors the planet venus but on the 22nd and 23rd you're going to have the moon and Venus basically right side by side, just about four degrees apart for us in the evening sky on the 22nd. And then a little bit further, maybe six degrees to the other side and to the north of Venus on the 23rd. That should be a pretty interesting pairing to see. Yeah. I always like when planetary or solar system bodies kind of align and get close in the night sky, always fun to look at. Actually, I had a look at the last one here. I think it was about a week or so ago, maybe just over a week ago, I went up and s- set up the little 60 millimeter Takahashi in the driveway with a low power eyepiece. And I could just squeeze the moon and Venus in to my field of view. I think it looked more like this. The uh, Monday, May 22nd date when they're a little bit closer, I think that's going to be uh, pretty neat to see in the nighttime sky. Mm-hmm. 
might be better for binoculars than for little telescopes even though. Yeah. Then on the 24th, we have Mars and the moon paired up. They're going to be just over three degrees apart. So maybe in a wide field little telescope or again, a, a binocular they're not going to be able to see much on Mars itself because Mars is certainly uh, pretty small and far away at this point. But just seeing the moon paired up with another planet is always pretty neat to see. Yeah, it is. So it should be nice to see that Mars and moon close approach there on the 24th. Hopefully we can see some of those uh, close approaches of the moon and, and the planets. The other thing that we have coming up is on May 26th, the Lunar X is going to be visible from Western Canada in the early morning sky. So Shane, what is the Lunar X and how can people see this thing? Uh, well, um, it's, uh, it's a clear, clear, obscure effect. It's just a shadow play on the moon. We've, we've talked quite a bit about that in the past, uh, in terms of what these uh, features are. They're not really uh, like a, a feature, more of a shadow play with, um, what's illuminated versus what's in shadow on the moon. And, uh, these types of effects are visible near the terminator, which is, uh, where the, the light terminates and it becomes dark on the moon. And uh, yeah, the Lunar X is uh, probably one of the most popular Claire Obscure effects on the moon. Um, and uh, the same night that the X is visible, there's a Lunar V, uh, usually just, or not usually, it is north of the uh, the X along the Terminator. And usually it's only visible for a short time span, unfortunately. So if it's like Western Canada, then like maybe we might be able to see the early parts here, but um you know, probably once you're much further west than us, like in you know Alberta and sort of towards the west coast of the states, that's probably going to be your best chance for seeing it. And if you're in eastern North America, there's probably almost no chance of seeing it unless you stay up later or something like that. Usually, it's just like one sort of somewhat localized region on the uh, on the Earth that that makes it visible. Eh? Yeah, for any of these, you really do need to. Um put in your location to determine whether or not you can see it because it won't be visible for the entire night. And therefore it is uh, somewhat limited, but even though this one will be visible for Western North America, uh, you know, there will be future lunar axes only visible from Europe. So everybody will get their chance at it throughout the course of the year. May 27th, we have the first quarter moon in the late afternoon and evening sky I was looking at the late afternoon first quarter moon the other day we were driving around and you could just see it sort of hanging there in in the afternoon sky really nice to do you ever do you ever take the telescope out and look at it when it's just sort of sitting there on a on a warm spring afternoon it's pretty neat to do eh? yeah it is it's neat how some of the craters sort of blend in with the blue sky and it almost becomes one on may 28th we have the lunar straight wall visible and did you see those images jim sent here i've i've got them here i'm just going to zoom in of the of the lunar straight wall. He took these, I think just the other day, uh, because we're recording this not too, too long after the, uh, seventh, uh, day moon. Yeah. Yeah. It actually looked better in the email. I don't know if it's just the video dropping some resolution, but, uh, um, probably, but, uh, yeah, you know, good, good images by Jim. And so this straight wall is, uh, is an escarpment otherwise known as Rupus rectus. Is that how you say it? it's Latin, I guess. Yep. Yeah. That's how you say that. And it's just a lunar fault line located in Southwestern Mare Nubian. Nubium. Yeah. It's another neat, one of those, uh, clear obscure effects, um, 
visually it, it really jumps out at you. It's very, very dark. Um, I guess it probably depends a little bit on the timing of when you're observing it, but, uh, that's another neat one that I enjoy. Mercury is at greatest elongation, 25 degrees from the sun on May 29th. However, I think it's too, I think it's really too close to the sun for making an observation. I didn't even put a screen capture in because even though it's 25 degrees away because of the angle at the sun for us anyway, and where Mercury is, yeah, they're 25 degrees away, but it's not that Mercury is 25 degrees above the sun rises and then 25 degrees of right ascension later, the sun rises, basically Mercury rises over to the right. And then the sun rises over to the left, like, I don't know, like half an hour later or less. So the sky is just exceptionally bright. And I think that you're still looking like close enough. I think it's too close for comfort. And the sky is just going to be so bright when Mercury is in the sky at all. I think it's it's too dangerous and probably not worth taking a look at anyway. Yeah, there's not much to see with Mercury. And then when uh, the next week rolls around, I think Mercury gets brighter, but it heads towards the sun. So it's brighter, but it's even even much, much closer to the sun. So on May 31st, Mars enters the Beehive. I think this is going to be neat. I saw this in Sky and Telescope magazine. I'm a subscriber, and I didn't see this in, in any of my other sources, but Mars is going to be on the rim of the Beehive cluster. And I just put this, this image here is what it's going to look like on the 31st of May in the evening sky. And it just gets into the outer stars of the Beehive, even though you're not really going to be able to see much of Mars through the telescope. Of course, you'll probably still be able to see it as a disc. And then over the following nights, it's like four nights or so, you'll see Mars slowly transition across the Beehive Cluster, which I think is uh, going to be a pretty neat sight to be able to see and should have a decent shot at actually being able to see Mars in front of the Beehive on at least one of those nights. Usually we have a clear night every four nights. So th there's a good chance of seeing this uh, little event. I think it is going to be neat. I wondered sometimes when a planet or the moon or something is in front of one of these clusters, to me, it's kind of underwhelming because often it's close to the horizon, like we were talking about with Jupiter and the moon. But this one, Shane, when I ran the software and I should have put the, the zoom in, you could really see how it's going to sort of meander amongst these stars. I think it's going to be a pretty neat event to see Mars in front of the beehive there uh, going forward from May 31st for the next four nights. Yeah, too bad it's not a favorable Mars opposition year. Mars will be quite small, but uh, nonetheless, uh, it'll be neat to see it there. Yeah, I think so. I think it's going to be worth uh, checking out. So that's sort of our our last uh, calendar event. I took a look. I don't know if you took a look at comets or anything else, but I couldn't see that there was any comets that are going to be brighter than magnitude 10.5 visible from the Northern Hemisphere this month. I think there might be a couple in the Southern Hemisphere that are hovering around 10th magnitude, but really I I couldn't find anything that was uh, that was of any bright significance at all when it came to comets this month, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... The the forecast for comets is basically nothing too spectacular for for a little while anyway. I don't think anything too bright uh, to be aware of at at this time. Um, so we'll keep watching as we always do in case that changes. I also looked at meteor showers. There's like I think it's like the Eta Aquarius are early in the month on the sixth, but the moon interferes with that. So I didn't. I don't bother putting in events where the moon is essentially full at the time when the meteor shower is taking place in the night sky. Suppose. Somebody might 
be curious to go out and try to make some observations, but I think it gets confusing for people when you're telling them to go out and take a look for stuff that requires a reasonably dark sky. And you're just not going to have a dark sky when, uh, when those meteor showers are taking place this month, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes that's how it lines up. Yeah. Unfortunately. So you have a double star. I see. Tell us about the double star. you've Yeah. This month. So, so this is up in Corvus. Uh, the designation for the parent is STF one, six, five, nine. And the reason this one jumped out at me is there's actually, uh, not just two stars to look at in this, uh, or in this double star system, but there's a uh, six, uh, which is pretty cool. Now the AB stars are physically, um, uh, connected, I guess, or, or part of a system. So like it's a true double, uh, the C star uncertain, uh, more science needs to happen there. And then the remaining four stars are all optical alignments, but nonetheless, it makes a, you know, a very interesting view. Uh, the separation is pretty, uh, pretty forgiving. These will be easy to split. Uh, the, the closest pair is the AB pair at 28.1 arc seconds. The biggest distance is between the A and F star at 209 arc seconds. Um, so all of those are very easy to split, even with small aperture. Um, and the magnitude of these stars, uh, the dimmest is the C star at 10.9. Uh, and then the F star, I think is the brightest at 6.6. And then they kind of vary in between. Um, so for anybody that's looking for kind of a larger system to look at, uh, this, you know, is one to add to your list. Um, as far as color goes, it looks like mostly kind of blue white stars. So I don't think you're going to see a large pop of color, uh, but it is always interesting to see multiple stars like this in a system, but also ones that really vary in magnitude, you know, to go from 6.6 to 10.9, there's a 9.9 and an 8.3, um, it, you know, it's just neat to start to be able to recognize some of the magnitudes, uh, of stars as well. So anyway, that's the one that I would throw out there for, uh, May. Have you taken a peek at this one yet, or is it on your to observe list? For to spring? observe list. Yeah. Yeah. I will be looking at it, uh, at some point here in the month of May. Nice. Look forward yeah. to hearing your observation. Anything else to add to this, our objects to observe in the May, 2023 night sky, Shane? That is all. Well, thanks, Shane. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Dear listeners, please subscribe and do us a favor of sharing the show with Stargazers. You know, we'd appreciate it as the more we grow, the better the show. Thanks for listening. And you can always reach us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.